The policeman on the beat moved up the avenue impressively. The impressiveness was habitual, not for show, for spectators were few. The time was barely ten o'clock at night, but chilly gusts of wind, with a taste of rain in them, had well-nigh depeopled the streets, trying doors as he went, twirling his club with many intricate and artful movements, turning now and then to cast his watchful eye down the Pacific thoroughfare. The officer, with his stalwart form and slight swagger, made a fine picture of a guardian of the peace. The vicinity was one that kept early hours. Now and then you might see the lights of a cigar store or of an all-night lunch counter, but the majority of the doors belonged to business places that had long since been closed. When about midway of a certain block, the policeman suddenly slowed his walk. In the doorway of a darkened hardware store, a man leaned with an unlighted cigar in his mouth. As the policeman walked up to him, the man spoke up quickly. It's all right, officer, he said reassuringly. I'm just waiting for a friend. It's an appointment made 20 years ago. Sounds a little funny to you, doesn't it? Well, I'll explain if you'd like to make certain it's all straight. About that long ago, there used to be a restaurant where this store stands. Big Joe Brady's Restaurant. Until five years ago, said the policeman. It was torn down then. The man in the doorway struck a match and lit his cigar. The light showed a pale, square-jawed face with keen eyes and a little white scar near his right eyebrow. His scarf pin was a large diamond, oddly set. Twenty years ago tonight, said the man. I dined here at Big Joe Brady's with Jimmy Wells, my best chum and the finest chap in the world. He and I were raised here in New York, just like two brothers together. I was 18 and Jimmy was 20. The next morning I was to start for the West to make my fortune. He couldn't have dragged Jimmy out of New York. He thought it was the only place on earth. But we agreed that night that we would meet here again exactly 20 years from that date and time, no matter what our conditions might be or from what distance we might have to come. We figured that in 20 years each of us ought to have our destiny worked out, and our fortunes made, whatever they were going to be. Sounds pretty interesting, said the policeman. Rather a long time between meets, though, it seems to me. Haven't you heard from your friend since you left? Well, yes, for a time we corresponded, said the other. But after a year or two, we lost track of each other. You see, the West is a pretty big proposition. And I kept hustling around over it pretty lively. But I know Jimmy will meet me here, if he's alive. For he always was the truest, staunchest old chap in the world. He'll never forget. I came a thousand miles to stand in this door tonight. And it's worth it if my old partner turns up. The waiting man pulled out a handsome watch. The lids of it set with small diamonds. Three minutes to ten, he announced. It was exactly ten o'clock. It was exactly ten o'clock when we parted here at the restaurant door. Did pretty well out west, didn't you? asked the policeman. You bet. I hope Jimmy has done half as well. He was kind of a plotter, though. Good fellow as he was. I've had to compete with some of the sharpest wits going to get my pile. A man gets a groove in New York. It takes the West to put a, ra a razor edge on him. The policeman twirled his club and took a step or two. I'll be on my way. Hope your friend comes around all right. Going to call time on him sharp. I should say not, said the other. I'll give him half an hour at least. If Jimmy is alive on earth, he'll be here by that time. So long, officer. Good night, sir, said the policeman, passing on along his beat, trying doors as he went. There was now a fine cold drizzle falling, and the wind had risen from its uncertain puffs into a steady blow. The few foot passengers astir in that quarter hurried dismally and silently, along with coat collars turned high and pocketed hands, and in the door of the hardware store, the man who had come a thousand miles to fill an appointment 
uncertain, almost to absurdity, with the friend of his youth, smoked his cigar and waited. About twenty minutes he waited, and then a tall man in a long overcoat, with collar turned up to his ears, hurried across from the opposite side of the street. He went directly to the waiting man. Is that you, Bob? he asked doubtfully. Is that you, Jimmy Wells? cried the man in the door. Bless my heart, exclaimed the new arrival, grasping both the other's hands with his own. It's Bob, sure as fate. I was certain I'd find you here if you were still in existence. Well, well, well. Twenty years is a long time. The old gone by, Bob. I wish it had lasted so we could have another dinner there. How has the West treated you, old man? Bully, it has given me everything I asked it for. You've changed lots, Jimmy. I never thought you were so tall by two or three inches. Oh, I grew a bit after I was twenty. Doing well in New York, Jimmy. Moderately. I've a position in one of the city department. Come on, Bob. We'll go around to a place I know of and have a good long talk about old times. The two men started up the street, arm in arm. The man from the West, his egotism, enlarged by success, was beginning to outline the history of his career. The other submerged in his overcoat, listened with interest. At a corner stood a drugstore, brilliant with electric lights. When they came into this glare, each of them turned simultaneously to gaze upon the other's face. The man from the West stopped suddenly and released his arm. You're not Jimmy Wells, he snapped. Twenty years is a long time, but not long enough to change a man's nose from a Roman to a pug. It sometimes changes a good man into a bad one, said the tall man. You've been under arrest for twenty minutes, Silky Bob. Chicago thinks you may have dropped over our way and wires us she wants to have a chat with you. Going quietly, are you? That's sensible. Now before we go on to the station, here's a note I was asked to hand you. You may read it here at the window. It's from Patrolman Wells. The man from the west unfolded the little piece of paper handed him. His hand was steady when he began to read, but it trembled a little by the time he had finished. The note was rather short. Bob, I was at the appointed place on time. When you struck the match to light your cigar, I saw it was the face of the man wanted in Chicago. Somehow, I couldn't do it myself, so I went around and got a plainclothes man to do the job. Jimmy. Oh, that one's kind of sad. In the northern part of Austin, there once dwelt an honest family by the name of Smothers. The family consisted of John Smothers, his wife, himself, their little daughter, five years of age, and her parents, making six people, toward the population of the city when countered for a special write-up, but only three by actual account. One night after supper, the little girl was seized with a severe colic, and John Smothers hurried down to town to get some medicine. He never came back. The little girl recovered and in time grew up to womanhood. The mother grieved very much over her husband's disappearance, and it was nearly three months before she married again and moved to San Antonio. The little girl also married in time, and after years had rolled around, she also had a little girl five years of age. She still lived in the same house where they dwelt when her father had left and never returned. One night, by a remarkable coincidence, her little girl was taken with cramped colic on the anniversary of the disappearance of John Smothers, who would now have been her grandfather if he had been alive and had a steady job. I will go downtown and get her some medicine, said John Smith, for it was none other than he whom she had married. No, no, dear John, cried the wife. You too might disappear forever and then forget to come back. So John Smith did not go, and together they sat by the bedside of little Pansy, for that was Pansy's name. After a little, Pansy seemed to grow worse, and John Smith again attempted to go for medicine, but his wife would not let him. Suddenly the door opened, and an old man stooped and bent, with long white hair entered the room. Hello, here is Grandpa, said Pansy. 
She had recognized him before any of the others. The old man drew a bottle of medicine from his pocket and gave Pansy a spoonful. She got well immediately. I was a little late, said John Smothers, as I waited for a streetcar. The Cactus by O. Henry. The most notable thing about time is that it is so purely relative. A large amount of reminiscence is, by common consent, conceded to the drowning man, and it is not past belief that one may review an entire courtship while removing one's gloves. That is what Trisdale was doing, standing by a table in his bachelor apartments. On the table stood a singular-looking green plant in a red earthen jar. The plant was one of the species of cacti, and was provided with long, tentacular leaves that perpetually swayed with the slightest breeze with a peculiar beckoning motion. Trisdale's friend, the brother of the bride, stood at a sideboard complaining at being allowed to drink alone. Both men were in evening dress. White favors like stars upon their coats shone through the gloom of the apartment. As he slowly unbuttoned his gloves, there passed through Trisdale's mind a swift, scarifying retrospect of the last few hours. It seemed that in his nostrils was still the scent of the flowers that had been banked in odorous masses about the church, and in his ears the low-pitched hum of a thousand well-bred voices, the rustle of crisp garments, and, most insistently recurring, the drawling words of the minister irrevocably binding her to another. From this last hopeless point of view he still strove, as if it had become a habit of his mind to reach some conjecture as to why and how he had lost her. Shaken rudely by the uncompromising fact, he had suddenly found himself confronted by a thing he had never before faced his own innermost, unmitigated, arid unbedecked self. He saw all the garbs of pretense and egoism that he had worn now turned to rags of folly. He shuddered at the thought that to others, before now, the garments of his soul must have appeared sorry and threadbare. Vanity and conceit? These were the joints in his armor. And how free from either she had always been but why as she had slowly moved up the aisle toward the altar he had felt an unworthy, sullen exultation that had served to support him. He had told himself that her paleness was from thoughts of another than the man to whom she was about to give herself. But even that poor consolation had been wrenched from him. For... When he saw that swift, limpid, upward look that she gave the man when he took her hand, he knew himself to be forgotten. Once that same look had been raised to him, and he had gauged its meaning. Indeed, his conceit had crumbled, its last prop was gone. Why had it ended thus? There had been no quarrel between them, nothing for the thousandth time he remarshaled in his mind the events of those last few days before the tide had so suddenly turned. She had always insisted upon placing him upon a pedestal, and he had accepted her homage with royal grandeur. It had been a very sweet incense that she had burned before him, so modest, he told himself, so childlike and worshipful, and, he would once have sworn, so sincere. She had invested him with an almost supernatural number of high attributes and excellencies and talents, and he had absorbed the ablation as a desert drinks the rain that can coax from it no promise of blossom or fruit. As Tristale grimly wrenched apart the seam of his last glove, the crowning instance of his fatuous and tardily mourned egoism came vividly back to him. The scene was the night when he had asked her to come up on his pedestal with him and share his greatness. He could not, now, for the pain of it, allow his mind to dwell upon the memory of her convincing beauty that night the careless wave of her hair, the tenderness and virginal charm of her looks and words. But they had been enough, 
and they had brought him to speak. During their conversation she had said, and Captain Carruthers tells me that you speak the Spanish language like a native. Why have you hidden this accomplishment from me? Is there anything you do not know? Now, Carruthers was an idiot. No doubt, Trisdale, had been guilty. He sometimes did such things, of airing at the club some old, canning Castilian proverb dug from the hodgepodge at the back of dictionaries. Carruthers, who was one of his incontinent admirers, was the very man to have magnified this exhibition of doubtful erudition. But, alas, the incense of her admiration had been so sweet and flattering. He allowed the imputation to pass without denial, without protest, he allowed her to twine about his brow this spurious bay of Spanish scholarship. He let it grace his conquering head, and, among its soft convolutions, he did not feel the prick of the thorn that was to pierce him later. How glad, how shy, how tremulous she was, how she fluttered like a snared bird when he laid his mightiness at her feet. He could have sworn, and he could swear now, that unmistakable consent was in her eyes, but, coyly, she would give him no direct answer. I will send you my answer tomorrow, she said, and he, the indulgent, confident Victor, smilingly granted the delay. The next day he waited, impatient, in his rooms for the word. At noon her groom came to the door and left the strange cactus in the red earthen jar. There was no note, no message, merely a tag upon the plant bearing a barbarous foreign or botanical name. He waited until night but her answer did not come. His large pride and hurt vanity kept him from seeking her. Two evenings later they met at a dinner. Their greetings were conventional, but she looked at him, breathless, wondering, eager. He was courteous, adamant, waiting her explanation. With womanly swiftness she took her cue from his manner, and turned to snow and ice. Thus, and wider from this on, they had drifted apart. Where was his fault? Who had been to blame? Humbled now. He sought the answer amid the ruins of his self-conceit. If the voice of the other man in the room, querulously intruding upon his thoughts, aroused him. I say, Trisdale, what the deuce is the matter with you? You look unhappy as if you yourself had been married instead of having acted merely as an accomplice. Look at me, another accessory, come two thousand miles on a garlicky cockroachy banana steamer all the way from South America to connive that the sacrifice please to observe how lightly my guilt rests upon my shoulders. Only little sister I had, too, and now she's gone. Come now, take something to ease your conscience. I don't drink just now, thanks, said Trisdale. Your brandy, resumed the other, coming over and joining him, is abominable. Run down to see me sometime at Punta Redonda and try some of our stuff that old Garcia smuggles in. It's worth the trip. Hello, here's an old acquaintance. Wherever did you rake up this cactus, Trisdale? A present, said Trisdale, from a friend. Know the species? Very well. It's a tropical concern. See hundreds of them around Punta every day. Here's the name on this tag tied to it. Know any Spanish, Trisdale? No, said Trisdale. With the bitter wraith of a smile is it Spanish? Yes. The natives imagine the leaves are reaching out and beckoning to you. They call it by this name Ventomarm. Name means in English, come and take me. 